Hello and thank you for checking out the Hopewell Valley Student Podcasting Network, a proud partner of the Hopewell Valley Student Publications Network, where students come together to publish student-driven content to share with the world. This network empowers students to become content creators for all different types of digital mediums. For more student-ran podcasts, blogs, artwork, and content, please check out the Hopewell Valley Student Publications Network at www.hvspn.com. The opinions represented within the digital content are those of the content creators. Now please, enjoy the following podcast episode. Welcome to my AP Biology Thoughts Podcasts. Our names are Olivia, Anushka, Mia, and Hannah, and we are your hosts to the Unit 8 Ecology Isle Royale Study Podcast. Today we will be discussing the Isle Royale Study and how it relates to the AP Biology curriculum. We're also here with a very special guest, uh, Dr. Geis, who is a biology teacher at our school. He also does a lot of the technology stuff, has his own podcast, pretty cool. And he actually was at the Isle Royale study, or has been a part of it, which is pretty cool. So if you want to tell us a little bit about it, go to town, King. All right, here we go. So thank you for the amazing introduction. Uh, I will tell you a little bit about Isle Royale. I will tell you, first of all, it was the best thing I did professionally in my life, was to get some uh, real in-person experience about what I'm teaching, because it allows me to deliver narrative into the classroom. So... I will say before, I taught through a book, I did a lot of cookie cutter labs, and I was pretty bad at teaching. And it's Not a, surprised. It's a craft. <laughs> it's a craft that you really have to work on. And one of the things I had to work on is getting you know, some type of experience that allows me to feel qualified to teach. So I built my confidence. But Iowa Royal is in the middle of Lake Superior, so if you look at a map, it's right where the K is in Lake. Uh, it's a pretty big, you know, island. It's like 45 miles one way, six miles the other. And uh, it's the home of the world's largest or longest running predator-prey study of moose and wolves without any type of human, human interaction or interruption uh, for the most part. There's been a couple hiccups along the way, but it's been pure, pretty pure other than that. So. My fir- after my first year of teaching, when I realized I wasn't doing, I wasn't teaching the way that I wanted, and I wasn't teaching the way that my students would best learn, I wanted to go get that experience. So I hopped into a research study, and I spent 10 days in the backcountry, that's what we call it, off the paths. And not a lot of people get the opportunity to go off the path, so I was very lucky in that. And my experience was just amazing that I went back a couple more times. How did you get involved? How did you find out about the study, about the IRL study? So through reflection, I realized I wanted to go get that experience. So I started looking up uh, different opportunities. And one of the ones that I came across was a program called Earthwatch. And they have several different ecology-based studies. Uh, And the one that seemed the most interesting to me was the moose and wolf study, because you go out and you look for bones you go look for something. So I'm just, I'm big into hiking and things like that, but when it comes to anything that I can make a competition out of, not a competition with others, just a competition for myself, 
that's definitely something that intrigued me. And then the, you know, the population study in itself, I just wanted to be a part of something like that. So that's what, through Earthwatch is where I learned about it. And that's where uh, the first time I went through. Since then, they do their own um, pooling for researchers to come out. So I encourage any students to go out there and give it a shot. If you think you could last 10 days in the backcountry living off your backpack with five other people. Oh gosh. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but we did learn, we did talk about it a little bit in environmental science. And so it's wolves and moose and the wolves, the moose swam over, right? And the wolves came through, it was an ice bridge or whatever. The, the lake froze over and they came over and that was in, what year was it? Well, the ice bridges formed a lot and it was more frequently in the eighties. It was like every other year, every couple of years, um, since, and I'm just throwing the date out there cause it's definitely not as frequent. I think it happened two times in the last 10 years and, uh, it wasn't long enough to really get many new wolves over to the island. Mm -hmm. So, but the wolves will get over by an ice bridge and the moose are very good swimmers and they're really tall. So they either walk or swam most of the way. So if there wasn't, so you said that they haven't really had enough time in the past 10 years for wolves to get to the Isle Royale. So how would that affect the trophic st structure of the island and how the energy flows between the consumers for this trophic structure? And then how would that also just affect the overall plant life and the producer um, population on the island? So this is a very complex question, so I'm going to tackle it in a couple different uh, angles here. But So I think we have to talk a little bit about the population of both species before I answer that question. If you look, let's just go back to the early 90s, mid 90s. Uh, there was a point in time where the moose population was at its max. It was like 2,500 moose, give or take. So it's an estimate, but 2,500 moose. And the wolf population, I think, got as high as the upper 30s, lower 40s at some point in time. And once again, that's an estimate based on um, just overhead plane visits and, uh, you know, surveying the lands and stuff like that. And they also collar the wolves. But there were separate events that caused for a declining of those populations. So it is a large island, but 2,500 moose, that's, that's a lot of moose. So if you think about their daily eating patterns during uh, the springtime through the fall, they have to put on the poundage for the winter because the food just isn't there. So they eat 12 to 16 hours a day during that time period. That's a lot of foliage that needs to be there for the moose to eat that much. So once they started eating all the food up, then we had a decline. There's this mass starvation of the moose population. So they lost a thousand plus moose because of not having enough food. All right. You also have the wolf population. It, there's this big hit on the wolf population because a fisherman brought its dog up onto the island and allowed it to go number two. I don't know how to say that any better, but go number two on the island. And that transmitted a canine parvovirus, which started killing off the moose, or the wolves. So that's just one event. I could keep going. You have predation of the 
of the moose, which is going to affect the population. You have winter ticks. You have all these different things. Mm -hmm. And with the wolves, you have this genetic inbreeding that is taking place. And the genetic inbreeding is, you know, you can see it in their, their skeleton. When they die, you can see some have extra vertebrae. Uh, you can see that. We could also do the genetic testing and realize that, you know, you might have a father and a daughter, you know, mating. That's not good for, for any species, just because the lack of genetic variation and the passing down of diseases and things like that. So, when you don't get any influx of moose or wolves onto the island to increase the genetic changes amongst that species, that's detrimental to a population because basically the population is going to become more and more inbred and it's going to become older. Mm -hmm. And once you get to a certain point, you're not going to have any wolves or any moose without introducing them in some way or shape or form. And that's kind of where they've gotten to the last couple of years. We had uh, some wolf packs that went extinct. We had some territorial battles. We had some wolves that went as loners. It's hard to survive as a wolf being alone. So all these things are going to impact the different trophic levels because you decrease the number of wolves, you increase the number of moose population. You decrease the number of stuff to eat mm -hmm. for the moose, you're going to decrease that population, and that's going to probably have a, probably not that much of an impact on the on the wolves just because that's still a small island, there's still over a thousand moose. So. so if it's so easy to um, change like the structure of the ecosystem and the uh, trophic structure, how did you, when you went on the island, prevent any interference in the ecosystem? So researchers practice like this carry in, carry out mentality. We try to make as minimal impact as we're there. So. Anything that we carry in to eat, all that trash stays with us the entire time. If we're along the trails and we find trash bins that they have at designated areas, we'll dump some stuff off there. But anything that we go in and out, and we, we just you know, try to make as minimal impact as possible. We filter our water so we're not bringing water bottles other than Nalgene bottles to filter the water into. The stuff that we eat is oatmeal and trail mix and peanut butter, low impact stuff while we're out there. So the most important thing is to leave the land uninterrupted. And, and that's what our goal is there, is just to study it, figure out what we can figure out and get out of there without interrupting. And to be honest, I think the biggest interruption that we were to that whole island was to the squirrels. Because when we would set up a camp at night, if you were underneath a tree that had a squirrel's nest in it, they would let you know. <laughs> and it was like that pretty much every spot that we went. They would go and go, you know, over and over, <laughs> right in your ear. And it was just, uh, it's, it's a good time. But that, that's a great mentality to have, not only when you go somewhere for a study, but also locally as well. Just try to make as minimal impact to the ecosystems as possible. Also, you were talking about how the moose population ate for 12 to 16 hours a day uh, when there was food available because it wasn't available in the winter months. So it's, I guess it's safe to assume that the producers were severely decreased. How long did it take for that population to kind of bounce back or to... I mean, plants are pretty uh, 
resilient. You could eat it down and then the next year it will grow back. It just depends on the population. But one cool thing that you could see there, and I could see this, and this was 10 years after the big like drop off of moose population because of the big starvation period. I could see where moose were because the trees will have these bare patches for a long way and like for the first 12, 13 feet. And then above that, it would be very, very bushy and big. So their main food is balsam fir. They, they really like the balsam fir. So you would see naturally trimmed trees by these moose. And you could see where they walk and where they eat and where they spent most of their time because of how that vegetation was shaped and it's basically from the, the moose eating. With these wolf, this wolf population declining so much, this, this study is the longest running natural study that humans haven't really interfered with. But now that you have this inbreeding occurring and you're watching the decline of the wolf population, do you think it's time for humans to kind of step in, especially as climate change is reducing the amount of times that the water freezes over and wolves can even get there? So they have. In 2018, the, uh, another big setback with the, the wolf population was the fact that um, they would take, I don't know, they hid in a mine, basically, um, in a cave, and it flooded and they all drowned. So that was three of the remaining, I think, seven left. So there's four left, two of them were loners, and then one was a mother, uh, a father and a daughter that was kind of going their own way. And to hunt a moose like that, it's just not sustainable. So they were looking at some of the other uh, animals that were on there, like the, the fox and the squirrels, and I guess whatever they could catch. Or if there was a dead moose, maybe they even would go after that, depending on how long it's been dead. But uh, they did step in, and I forget what genetic uh, interruption, genet I, it's genetic something, but basically what they did is they took some wolves that would have been able to come over in the ice bridge, and they reintroduced those to the study. And uh, that was, this might be the second time that's happened during the study, and uh, you know, a lot of us didn't want to see that happen, but it was necessary for the study. And it's necessary for the pres uh, preservation of the island. I'm afraid if they don't run that study, what would happen to that island? Would it just come, you know, when you look at the Galapagos and how many tourists go there and where they're able to go and how depleted the Galapagos got because of that, I'm wondering if the same thing would happen because it's absolutely beautiful up there. So that's just, I mean, they did introduce a couple of wolves, but um, Minnesota, Canada, they're both right there. They both have wolves. And if that ice bridge did form, there would be a chance that that would actually occur in nature too. So me personally, I didn't want to see it happen, but I understand that it was necessary for the, the state of the study. All right, and so I think it's now kind of important to tie it back into the AP Biology curriculum. Um, this is obviously evidence of predator-prey relationships. And we also kind of talked about trophic structures and the, just the flow of energy between organisms in an ecosystem and how it can be impacted by a sudden increase or decrease of certain predators or consumers or producers even in that um, ecosystem in itself. And I also had a question. So besides the wolves, did they, were there any other factors that could impact the wolf population? Other than themselves, like 
territory oh, I mean about moose population. the moose Sorry. population. Yeah. So the moose population, yeah, there are a couple of different factors. We already mentioned the starvation, so the food factor, but also the uh, the ticks, the winter ticks. Now they don't have like Lyme's disease or anything like that, but there's a lot of them because the winters haven't been harsh, mm-hmm. and so the winters aren't harsh. They don't have a lot of food. Uh, there could be up to 100 to 300 uh, ticks, winter ticks, on a three-inch square of the moose's body. So what do they do? They go rub up against the bark. Now they're going to be colder. They're going to shiver more. That uses more energy. They don't have the food to support that. And that could lead to being ill or dying as well. I think this can connect back to the AP biology curriculum. By see, um, we can look at a, a parasitic relationship um, with the ticks and the moose, where the ticks are obviously being benefited by sucking the blood of the moose, and the moose are being negatively impacted because of this relationship. No, I think that's a great tie. Uh, I mean, biomass pyramids, ecological niches. I mean, you can, anything in the, the eco in the ecology unit can really be tied back to this. And that, that is the importance of why I wanted to go out there and get some real life uh, studying and real life experiences, because these are the narratives that I could bring back to share with students that would make a rather dry curriculum a little bit, you know, spicier. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That was amazing. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of My AP Biology Thoughts. For more student-ran podcasts and digital content, please make sure that you visit www.hvspn.com.